0: You know we have to be rabidly curious in this business and it does take a lot of time and you have to know how to use that time efficiently but i never want to you know not pay attention to something that could be interesting ultimately so it's definitely combing through a lot but i think you can find things wherever what's going
1: on everybody and welcome to collector's gene radio This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening and please enjoy today's guest on collector's gene radio. Today, we're chatting with men's fashion director for Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus, Bruce Pask. Bruce has had an amazing trajectory in menswear over the last 30 years, especially for someone who grew up in Southern Arizona. Today's conversation on collecting is a little different than something I've done in the past. As a fashion director of two of the biggest names in the industry, Bruce's role is really curating collections for, well, all of us. Curating for multiple brands has become a pretty easy task for him as he's always got his eye on the next thing. But what really goes into curating collections and how it relates to collecting as a whole is what I wanted to know. Collecting as a hobby can come in many different forms and I think Bruce is the perfect example of that. And without realizing it, he also collects one very specific item of clothing which has become a staple in his everyday wardrobe. It's safe to say that we could all learn something from Bruce. But for now, please enjoy Bruce Pask for Collector's Dream Radio. Bruce Pask, welcome to Collector's Dream Radio.
0: Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. We are Arizona boys, but you are on the East Coast now. <laughs> I know.
0: Funny. Um, what a small world.
1: Yep. And I actually um, grew up with two of your cousins. I believe is that correct?
0: <laughs> I was home <laughs> for the holidays as they, say, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how we found out this mutual connection through. Uh, through
1: Too cooking. funny. Yeah. So you're the men's fashion director at Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus, and for a podcast that's all in collecting, I think we're gonna have a really interesting conversation because most of our guests are used to hearing about you know specific items that people collect, but I'm excited to talk about a shift in and hopefully what people will start thinking of when it comes to collecting and curating collections. Can you talk about your role a little bit more in depth because there's a lot that you do
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well also it, you kind of um beat me to it with this idea you know the collector's radio, but I think Collecting for me is also an aspect of curation. And then and you, you literally just said that. And, and I, that's, that is sort of most applicable to what I do and in, in, in my work and vocation as well as, I guess, in my life as well. But um, you know, my background, just in a, in a quick kind of summation, I, I've been a journalist most of my life. I was a fashion editor and a stylist, always specializing in menswear. Um, Started at GQ and then uh, worked freelance, working with a lot of shoots and photography with Annie Leibovitz at Vanity Fair. Then back at Condé Nast at Cargo Magazine. And then ultimately at the New York Times, where I was for seven years as the men's fashion director there at T Magazine. And then moved into retail about eight years ago as the men's fashion director, Bergdorf Goodman, and now Neiman Marcus um, as well. And people often ask me, like, was that a strange jump. Was that a, 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 um, a difficult transition? And for me, it felt quite natural because, you know, I consider myself quite expert in this field. It's quite specific. And I, one could call it niche, but I do feel like I, um, have quite a grasp on that world of fashion that is uh, devoted to menswear. And so for me, it was more of just a contextual shift rather than a complete, um, about face. So, you know, in the printing world as well as, uh, dot-com and digital, you know, content creation is certainly what we did and what people do. Um, and within the context of the store for me, it was very, very similar. Just in, it was more just dimensional, like it was in in life and three dimensions rather than, um, online or in print. So, uh, you know working with um i guess what starting what we do is is you know going to the fashion shows going to these trade shows being in market going on appointments meeting with designers and ultimately the goal is to gather as much information as possible understand our audience so when it was a magazine we had you know audiences and demographics and psychographics and that within the store we have an audience that is our customer uh both online and and in store and so i think it's understanding who your customer is, and making sure that we're speaking directly to that customer and, and intriguing him and inspiring him. And that is, you know, scouring the market for new things, keeping up with our current partners, um, developing relationships with new partners, and um, finding things that are compelling. Um, and when I say market, it's it's kind of you know, being at all those things we mentioned before, you know, being at shows, showrooms, trade shows, everything from Pittiwomo to Project to Man Woman trade shows. I mean, I'm a, a big fan of a trade show. I think it's a an amazing way to see a lot of brands that we may or may not know.
1: Yeah, I have some questions on the trade show stuff. And just to touch on your impressive 30-year-esque career, I mean, I think the biggest... uh <laughs> the biggest thing to overcome was probably moving from Arizona to, to the fashion world as Arizona is not necessarily the fashion capital of the world. But um, uh, touching on trade shows, you know, you mentioned Pity Womo. And this is obviously a show that you see a lot of people in the menswear world traveling to. And typically trade shows, a lot of times aren't very transactional um, in a lot of other industries. But I, I truly feel like in the menswear world, it, it's really the place where people launch things that are are new and exciting and uh, try to be relevant and that sort of stuff. Would you say that's true?
0: I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I mean, it is literally where we go to scout brands, where we look to see new merchandise, meet vendors that we don't know. In addition to meeting with designers and brands and, and vendors that we already do business with or partner with. I mean, I scour the fairgrounds. I mean, I think many people have different, you know, kind of strategies and ways they go about it. But for me, I literally walk every aisle of of every building just to make sure I don't miss anything. And And you never know what you're going to find and you've got to keep your eyes open. And I am always curious, but we also have, you know, efficiency is always necessary. So it is making these very quick assessments or snap judgments when you're walking a hallway and I've you know honed my craft and my skills to be able to kind of spot things very quickly because you can't devote a good amount of time with every booth there's just not enough time in the day so it is about scouring every inch and and being efficient and making these I would say educated snap judgments and when you think you want to devote the time to having a conversation and going through the line as briefly as you can but getting the gleaning as much information as possible.
1: It must be extremely difficult to decipher up and coming trends, especially for two different stores, both really high end, but in their own different way. I mean, how do you, how do you differentiate what collections you curate for both stores?
0: Yeah. I mean, well, I, again, it's like we work, work in teams for sure. I mean, I, you know, as men's fashion director, I work with the merchants and so I have I report into chief merchants and uh, what they call them, uh, GMMs, um, and they oversee teams of buyers. And I sort of work as an informer and as a guide of sorts, I guess. And and we most importantly is, is establishing trust. You know, it's not an imperious position. It's not you know, coming in and like, this is what why what I want, and this is what I like, and this is what we should be doing. It's not that at all. And the title can easily kind of infer that that's how it is, but it's very much teamwork and collaborative and knowing what our stores are like, um, knowing what our customers are interested in and what they're not. So that really dictates all of that certainly the premier luxury shopping destination in America and both BG and, and Neiman Marcus. And there are definite customer intersections between um, both stores. And so finding those areas that do connect and then recognizing the differentials between the different customers. With Neiman's specifically, since um, you know maybe some of your listeners, uh, this may be a little inside baseball for fashion, but there is only one Bergdorf Goodman store. It's in New York City. Um, there's a women's store and a men's store, and it's across the street. Uh, they ex- ex- exist across the street from each other on Fifth Avenue. But Berg, uh, sorry, Neiman Marcus, we have many, many stores over the across the country, 36 plus online, and each one of those markets is very distinct. And so we kind of look at those as, as yes, there are um, important partnerships and brands and vendors that um, are you know key partners to the company throughout our store networks. Each market does have differentiation, so we want to make sure that we're um, localizing and, and being very analytical about each local market and what's best for them. So I think it feels organic to me. I've spent so much time in as many of the stores as I can and really spending time with customers that it does, I would like to say it feels innate. Um, so, it, it, I do feel like I have a very good understanding of, of our customers and what's interesting to them and compelling and exciting, but it, it's certainly based on a lot of research, a lot of time in the stores, a lot of engagement with the associates, which I think is so important to mention that you know they're the direct connection to these customers and what they want. They know best. They have these very longstanding, trustworthy relationships with clients, and, and their information is, is the most valuable.
1: A few years ago you launched the B shop. Can you tell us what this curated collection is is all about?
0: Sure, 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 sure. So um this was uh, about 3 years ago. Um this is uh, at Bergdorf Goodman in New York. BG just to give a little bit of an explanation of the physicality of the store. It's three floors and it's I would say we're a very large specialty store or a very small like curated department store. And, and so it's it's not huge like when you see these giant European department stores, it is not that. Uh, so each floor is quite distinct. Our third floor is, is very, very, you know, kind of runway fashion-driven designer sneakers, you know, uh, very runway brands. The second floor is very sartorial with incredible tailoring uh, brands out of Naples. We have Kiton, Cesare Attolini. that's also where our exclusive Tom Ford shop is, um, Armani. Uh, and then the first floor is is devoted uh, very much to luxury sportswear as well as as footwear and accessories of brands like Brunello Cucinelli and Laura Piana. So each floor has quite a distinct identity, and we've worked very hard to blend and create this flow across floors. But nonetheless, there is a distinction. So I th- was just like noticing over time that there was this aspect of. Wardrobe-driven brands that were more style-minded rather than fashion-y, i guess capital F fashion—that were, I guess, not just getting got, not getting enough airtime, not getting enough attention because it's they're more quiet collections. They're uh, to just name check some brands, but when I started, we had brands like Ami, uh, Todd Snyder, Michael Bastian, uh, Band of Outsiders, Officine General, and. When you compare those to more kind of statement-making, colorful, logo-driven brands, you know, they they can fade a bit into the, the background. And so I felt it was important to emphasize this kind of category, this kind of wardrobe-driven category of clothing that was needing a little bit more of attention and more care and curation. Um, and so I thought the best way to do that would be to create an environment where these Smaller collections can live together, and that way they can get the attention and the meaning and the context that I felt like they needed. And this also allowed us to explore the idea of really curating a shop like a specialty store. So, not displaying simply by brand, but mixing the merchandise, mixing vendors with each other, and kind of approaching it more like you would somebody's closet, but then also buying brands that were kind of best in class in a category, you know, like uh, buying chore jackets from Le Mans Saint-Michel and uh, knitwear from Peregrine. So it it allows us to kind of approach the retail environment in in a very specific way.
1: Right. Collections that could be, you know, dressed up or down yet still exude elegance when done correctly.
0: Yeah. And I think they are a little quieter, but they are still unique and interesting. I mean, I, the, the B shop customer is certainly looking for statement-making things and things that are, uh, you know, compelling visually. But it's just in a more wardrobe-driven way rather than a very kind of overtly fashion way. Um, and, and again, they're all equally important paths. Uh, and just like it was something where I felt like we could better address this customer in a way. Uh, that we have an opportunity to do so. And so I think it's more about like, how can we best serve the customer? And uh, this was uh, another avenue in which to do that.
1: I would have to imagine that when you're curating collections, whether it's for the B-shop or Bergdorf or Neiman, your mindset of collecting and curating is that of the same as it would be if it were an item for yourself, right? You're you're creating these collections based on design, look, materials, pieces that maybe are undiscovered. And you want them all to tell a story when someone looks at it, and just like collecting a physical object, I would have to assume that your style and tastes have evolved over time. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely, and it's one of those things I can tell you with without any hesitation that um, style is definitely learned and acquired. I had a very different relationship with clothing when I was younger. I mean, we were—I grew up, you know—I I lived in Yuma, Arizona, through high school and you know, was the height of the Preppy Handbook. And so that was very much our connection to what was interesting to us in fashion. Also just that lifestyle felt so different compared to how it was where we were living in Arizona. It felt very exotic and interesting and compelling. And But, you know, when I I went to school after I graduated high school, I went back East to school and then stayed on the East Coast and ultimately moved to New York. And I was absolutely, um, you know, learned about style and fashion as I progressed in the industry. I, I would shudder to think or to speak here about some of the things that I used to wear. I, uh, I'm so always just kind of amazed when you see, you know, really young children out there these days that have their style pulled together. I mean, it's I find it always impressive and I, I was not that case at all. It was something that I learned over the course of many, many years. And so, you know, in a job like mine, I would definitely say that the B Shop is certainly very personal and I think reflects and, and represents a good amount of my style. But I also think that we approach, you know, this curation in a very objective way. Like there are certainly plenty of things in that shop that I don't wear, but that I know we have customers for. I think it's probably the most personal assortment in the store. So there's a lot of it that I would certainly easily find in my my closet, but the job in general requires a real necessary objectivity. I mean, we have to kind of put our personal taste and preferences a little bit to the side and always keep the customer in mind. And that's the most primary focus for me, for sure.
1: What would you say is the first step of launching a collection? Is it, you know, does it start at Pitywomo? Does it, Start with a, someone you saw at a restaurant wearing a certain outfit. I mean, could it be any of those things?
0: Do you mean about like how does a, a brand or collection sort of make its way into the, the world and the consciousness?
1: Yeah. And and even more specifically, you know, into the B shop, let's say. Where do you start to launch a new collection for the B shop?
0: Gosh, I mean, it can really come from any place. I mean, uh, like Petit Uomo, I've certainly found quite a few brands there. Um, over the years, uh, the Man Woman Show in Paris and New York is also a great show. You know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues in the business that certainly refer brands to me. There's an interesting story where I was actually at this weekend getaway with some friends in Northern California and on an organic ranch and met these guys that have this brand called Taylor Stitch. And they were doing a photo shoot there and we, you know, just hang out with them over the course of the weekend because we both were in the same location and a few years later we you know we stayed in touch and just most recently launched a capsule collection with them in the B shop that we celebrated over the holiday and you know they came to town we had a party we had an installation and and you know this was this goes back quite a few years and we just kind of waited until the timing was right so i think it can come from anywhere i mean people dm me quite often on instagram and i always I had a a zoom call this morning with a brand um, where somebody connected with a brand had gotten in touch with me on Instagram. And, you know, we have to be rabidly curious in this business and it does take a lot of time and you have to know how to use that time efficiently, but I never want to, you know, not pay attention to something that could be interesting ultimately. So it's definitely combing through a lot, but I think you can find things wherever I think the B-Shop particularly is less runway-driven, so it's it's probably not so much a fashion show kind of area of the business that we're going to be cultivating brands for the B-Shop, but for the store in general and for Neiman Marcus, uh, the runway is certainly an important part of discovery and also seeing the seasonal changes from the collections. So yeah, I mean, we absorb our information truly and literally everywhere. And you have a brother...
1: Uh, who works in set design on Broadway, if I understand correctly. And do you ever help him curate collections for costumes and sets and all that sort of stuff?
0: That's a really good question. Yeah, my brother, Scott, we're, we're twins. Um, we both. Grew I was going to say, if
1: you're not twins, you, you sure look a lot alike.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 we are. And um, he is has won multiple Tony Awards for set designs for Broadway. Um, he works on a lot of different projects that are, scene and design and interior related. Um, we have collaborated before on shows. Um, I did a play on Broadway, The Costumes, um, for Design for Living and Noel Coward show many years ago. And a director had approached my brother and I about doing costumes for a revival of a Burt Backrack um, musical called Promises, Promises that we did with Christian Chenoweth and Sean Hayes. Uh, the director was Rob Ashford. And so I did the costumes and Scott did the set. And yeah, it was really like an incredible experience and and something I, was, I did not have the skill set for, to be frank. Uh, but I, I think like in any situation, I knew I had an aesthetic. I knew I had a point of view. My nature as a creative artist is always wanting to know how to do every aspect of what I'm working on. And so it was a very vulnerable state to be in to know that I don't know the machinations of this, but I know that I have a vision. So I met and and, and collaborated with an amazing costume assistant who um, really showed me how to translate what I envisioned for the world of the stage. But everything is, you know, very m- much about, Movement, which um, in the store, you know, clothing on on the customer and and the person is certainly dimensionalized, but it's very different than choreography that throws people in the air and moves them around and having to get like you know '60s style clothing because it was a musical based in the '60s that um, it was. Very terrifying often, but incredibly rewarding. And I was super proud of it. It was a really exciting thing to do. And I'm so glad I did. And after that, that director hired me. I, I cost resigned with another amazing designer. We did uh, two Oscars ceremonies, um, uh, two years of that. that. So uh, it's it had been a very, uh, there was no um, straight line trajectory in my career. I've been, uh, there's always been a focus on menswear, but a lot of, working in different areas and fields and, and aspects of fashion, which I've I've really loved all of it, to be honest.
1: And part of your role, or a big part of your role rather, is figuring out incoming and outgoing trends. And without re- revealing too much, can you tell us about a trend or a piece of clothing or style that
0: you see incoming and one you see outgoing? <laughs> yes, that's a good question. It's a good way to phrase it because I think the trend talk can you know, can be hard for people to kind of absorb in a topical way. For me, I think it's more interesting to look at them as sort of like as movements, whereas it's like directions. Because I think when we think trends, it seems very, I don't know. I don't know if people feel a connection to it or that has meaning in their lives. Whereas what it really is, is just a representation. Trends are just representations of what the clothing means in our culture, what people are interested in and where our needs and our desires are gravitating. So I look at more of the machinations and the movements of that to just put it in a context that I hope makes your um, listener feel a little more relevant to his or her lives. And so with that being said, um, like we're in a really interesting time that... um, Men's wear specifically, the pendulum shifts and swings in a much slower, methodical way um, just because of the nature of the, the male customer. The women's market is a much bigger market. It moves very, very quickly. So there is a differentiation in in that aspect. And so it takes time for trends to develop, be adopted, embraced, and then to spread throughout the community or the country or the globe. And and so it, it takes a little time. So I like that it's not so whiplash making in the men's world. It takes some time. So with that being said, um, we've been in a, a, a long era of things being trim and slender, tight, fitted. Um, and it, it's so strange to see that, but it's, you know, Tom Brown debuted, about 25 years ago, he's coming up on his 25th anniversary, I reckon. And and so when he debuted his, you know, shrunken JFK-inspired sack suit, um, you know, that was jarring to the eye. We were coming in the heels of clothing having been quite roomy and uh, accommodating. And that was a very, very, you know, very avant-garde at the time, which seems so wild to think about right now because our eye has become so adjusted to it over the decades. So that really had a huge influence on menswear in general, like moving away from wider pleated pants. And we remember, you know, casual Fridays and the the double pleated dockers, you know, this was a shift into flat front trim, cropped pants, fitted jackets, um, you know, where the shoulders really matched your natural shoulders, the arm, the armholes were higher. And I think that this has persisted for a very long time. And now what we've seen over the last few seasons, and it's continuing to build momentum, is we've seen a lot more exaggerated proportions, things getting fuller, more voluminous, um, dropped shoulders, extended sleeves, you know, legs that are, are more full and wide. And where I think this will have its kind of first kind of broad manifestation is in denim, particularly, where we have been in a very, very skinny, tight, um, you know, 5 denim world. And now we're moving into, and it's not going to be dramatic or drastic. And it's going to be, again, as the customer experiences this desire and relevance in his or her life, but it is going to be, you know, we're shifting from this very skinny leg to a more straight leg denim where, you know, there will be a little puddling um, at the bottom of the hem and requires a fuller kind of footwear statement. And there will be, you know, early adopters and, you know, fashion fans that are going to take that even wider because we are certainly seeing like very, very dramatically wide leg jeans, voluminous pants. And so I think given this terrain right now in the menswear fashion landscape, things are moving into this area of volume. So, and this will take time. This will take, you know, seasons and years as it trickles down. And, um, but I, I do see that on the horizon immediately, like imminently, like we are already having examples of this in our store. That to me, I think is interesting. And also I like that it's not immediate. I like that it takes time because I, I don't think that we should be getting whiplash from one season to the next. Um, you know, I think it's, it's nice to build confidence and and then when things are interesting to a customer that there is an appreciation for the time that takes to adjust the eye. When we first
1: started chatting about having you on the podcast, um, you weren't really sure that you collected anything. But as I learned more about you, I learned that chore jackets are are really a staple for you. And you, in fact, do collect them.
0: That's funny. Yeah, I, guess I wear a lot of them. But I it's, it's funny because like it is funny that word collect, to me, has a preciousness about it, which I do not um, approach my clothing that way or anything really? Well, yeah. I mean, certain things you, you collect,
1: you obviously have to be pre- precious with and take care of, but certain things are meant to be used and, yeah. you know, watches are, are meant to be used and worn and some things are meant to be kept in the safe. Some aren't, but what is it about the chore jacket that has become such a staple for you?
0: It is. Yeah. And I guess, and to go back to your, uh, that sort of, it's not really even a differentiation. It is more of like a, they're kind of, I guess, um, parallel terms, uh, collecting and, and curating. I, I guess for me, curating is feels, I don't know, more approachable from my personal point of view. The chore jacket is interesting. Um, I mean, I think, and this is where it is about, you know, looking at clothing as a manifestation of what's going on in the broader culture. You know, we've seen, obviously, the relaxation of clothing standards and, and requirements in the workplace, and this has been going on for quite some time. And as a person that's sort of middle-aged in fashion, personally, I prefer to wear a jacket. I feel more presentable when I wear a jacket, a sport jacket, and I have plenty that I really love. But it was feeling like maybe a little too pulled together or maybe it was a message that I just was feeling like I wanted something a little bit more, not obscure, but maybe something that felt a little bit uh, more interesting personally to me, you know, so I, you know, knew of this brand in Paris, Le Mans Saint-Michel, and they've been making these moleskin chore jackets for more than a century. And, and based on what they are is it's a, it's a French worker jacket. I mean, it's, you know, incredibly durable. Um, it is a uniform and it's basically kind of a, a slightly a line. So the fit is very generous. It's not very fitted. And it's, you know, gotten button fronts. It's got a sort of a, just a a collar that one would see like on a straight collared shirt. And it's got two front patch pockets and a chest patch pocket. And I just, you know, I bought my first one was Navy and classic. I I just wore it like I would wear a sport jacket and sometimes I would dress it up and sometimes I would wear it with a t-shirt. And I, it just become one of those things where I was immediately adopted it as a uniform. And so they're they make many, many different colors and fabrications. I, you know, then I got a French blue one, then I got an olive one, and then I did ones in corduroy for the shop that were exclusives. Then I did one in gray flannel. And so, yeah, it became sort of this go-to um, kind of jacket shape for me. And, and I do think the part of it was, you know, aging in the fashion world where I, Feel just much more comfortable, slightly covered up. <laughs> I guess we can say, you know, and and that's just a personal thing, and and it it suits me well. And I and I also do love the idea of a uniform, like having a sort of you know wardrobe that I know that I can look forward to every day without having to put too much thought into it. And it is sort of these components that I mix and match, but there is sort of a, a I guess an index of. Some of these classic pieces that I do you know just kind of rotate um, on a daily basis, and then well, always I, I am wearing one in
1: in honor of recording with you today, so oh, wow <laughs> <laughs>
0: and
1: which one are you wearing one what, what, I'm wearing uh one that I just got last time I was in New York from Alex Mill oh um, yeah of course. in a in a French blue uh, corduroy
0: Oh, fantastic, I mean they're great, aren't they
1: they're amazing um they you know, like you said, they come in different fabrics, different colors, yeah. different weights. Um, you know, some are more canvassy and mm-hmm. and a little, you know, more rigid, and some are more soft. And um, they're great, and and I understand why it's a staple um, for you and in, in almost every day. You know,
0: yeah. I mean, I do worry that I've become such a cliche, and it's like, oh, Bruce in the chore jacket, because I, you know, I've, I know it's great. I've literally, worn it into the ground, but I also just like I. I, I just, I just love when you can kind of develop a uniform for yourself, and that it absolves me of spending too much time thinking about my own clothing, and I can devote my time to thinking about my work and my customers and my colleagues and and what we're doing for the stores. So, it really, there is a reason why uniforms work for people. You know, it it really does. It is a time saver, and there is a huge amount of originality possible throughout this specific. I guess the proliferation of this garment because, you know, we just got a new shipment this season and we're doing it for spring in this kind of parchment. The French company, they call it craft, like craft paper, which I think is really great. So it's sort of like a very goldeny khaki color. And then we did this more abstracted, it's different colors of indigo, but in this um, sort of patchworked jacket. So There are more statement-making versions of these. And as you said, there's a lot of different weights from Pinwell Corduroy to, you know, heavy wool Melton. Uh, Massimo Alba, a great designer out of Italy, um, does his own version of a chore jacket called the Balletto. And he does them in velvet. And so I have a black velvet chore jacket from him that I wear for evening. And so I, I, I think there are so many different iterations that I dare say i will probably be wearing them for the next couple decades as well
1: (laughs) i don't blame you at all (laughs) i know we're short on time so i want to make sure we get the collector's gene rundown squared away so uh let's get into that what's the one that got away this could have been a chore jacket that that you missed or this could have been something you wanted to add to a collection that you were curating for the store take it away
0: yeah, no. Um, I thought about this a little bit, and it 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 probably is more about um, jaeger Coultre did a reverso in stainless a while back. It was special edition, and it was really well priced. And I kind of kicked myself for not getting that. It was maybe like six or eight years ago. I, I again, I am so not as up on the recent developments in the watch world as I was when I was covering it for the New York Times, but. That's one where I kind of wished I'd you know let's pay a little more attention to this and maybe we should get into it, so yeah, I was a a Jaeger uh, la culture reverse so that they did a special edition of a while back.
1: What's the on deck circle, so what's next for you in collecting or curating
0: That's a hard one to answer because again it's not a mindful thing but again like when you mentioned about collecting it's like well you wear these chore jackets you have quite a few of them like it's not such a proactive activity that i engage in but it does certainly happen sort of maybe without my real awareness or or activity so that's hard for me to say i i don't there's nothing on my horizon that i'm um
1: it's to be determined
0: yeah i think so
1: How about the unobtainable one you can't have? Maybe it's too expensive or in a museum or, you know, a brand that maybe you just haven't worked with yet.
0: I mean, I'm a huge Craig Green fan and he's an amazing English designer. Um, I saw his first collection, uh, his graduation collection, and he's persisted and and succeeded in a, you know, very difficult industry. And I find him just infinitely creative and expansively inspiring. Um, I have some interesting pieces of his, but he, some early collections. Um, I do wish like he did very kind of psychedelic work jacket. And he developed this work jacket of his that continues to be a fashion staple for many people in the business. And so I think there were some early pieces of his. Um, I have one from a collection he did that was based on carpets and pubs. And I have a version of that, but there were some others that I, unfortunately did not get a hold of but i do get in fits where i scour the internet um every (laughs) months and see what's out there but yeah i would say like a craig green collectible is always interesting to me how about the page
1: one rewrite so if you could collect anything money no object what would it be and why
0: I mean, I would love to be able to to financially afford collecting houses. I think that would be really funny. You're but the second person to say that it's a
1: it's a it's a good one.
0: That is not economically feasible. So I uh, I am grateful and 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 thankful and have a huge amount of of, of appreciation for the fact that I have a, a a little teeny cottage out east and I have an apartment in the city. So that's enough of a collection for me. But um, you know, we're money start. We're money no object. That would. Uh, I think, be fun to, I think, explore having homes and spending time elsewhere. But I think ultimately I would probably wind up using that as a survey to see where did I want to most spend my time. And then that would probably um, hunker down in one of those. Love it. How about the goat? Who do you look up to in the collecting world? Um, I'm sure you know Matthew Horanick and Yolanda Edwards, he of William Brown Project and Yolanda has a magazine called YOLO Journal, and they were long, um, amazing photographer, creative directors at Connaissance Publications. And, and Maddie, I knew from a v- you know for a very long time. Um, we were both assistants in the fashion world. He was a photo assistant for a photographer, and I assisted at GQ magazine, and we traveled on shoots together all over the world and became really good friends. And he and uh, he and Yolanda have developed these amazing magazines that they do, um, William Brown Project and YOLA Journal, as we mentioned. And I think they have such a, a really a smart appreciation for clothing, experiences, travel, places, food um, that I I find uh, incredibly appealing. And I I think the information they share is really valuable. And they travel to a lot of vintage markets tag sales um they have a house in the south of france where they have uh, they're always sharing um incredible finds from villages nearby and and yolanda has great collections that she'll photograph from time to time you know like hotel room keys and uh, vintage matchbooks and i mean all all different kinds of things that ephemera from the world of travel that i always find fun to look at yeah
1: they're great people
0: very very great people
1: do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more?
0: Um, I enjoy the search, but once I'm aware of something that I want, I just, I, I don't want to be frustrated by not being able to have it. So I, <laughs> I think it's about the information gathering I find really fun. I, I love the the, the searching. Um, and then once I find something, I definitely want um. You know, I'm quite judicious. I, Like I said, I have a uniform, so I'm not a big procurer. But I do think I'm quite clear about things that I do want.
1: Most importantly, Bruce, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene?
0: <laughs> I would say that you have convinced me that I have been. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's my job.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, I, yeah, for sure. I, I, I appreciate the, the awareness. That's a good way to put it. <laughs>
1: Bruce, thank you so much for coming on. Um, It's truly a pleasure to talk with you and uh, hope that we can get together next time you're you're in Arizona and chat more about this stuff.
0: Indeed, indeed. It's been my pleasure and and thanks. I appreciate the interest and it's been a, a fun conversation. Thank you.
1: All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collectors Gene Radio.